Ireland's Call with Simon Tierney. This is News Talk. Good afternoon and welcome to another special St. Patrick's Day edition of Ireland's Call here on News Talk. I'm Simon Tierney and over the next two hours we're going to be speaking to the Repats. Who are those, I hear you ask? Quite simply, the Irish who have spent time living abroad but have now repatriated back to these shores because they just couldn't resist the pull of the old sod. If that's you, we want to hear from you. Get in touch on Ireland's Call at Newstalk.com. Text us on 53106 or tweet me at Tierney Simon. Now, later in the programme, I'll be speaking with people who have returned to Ireland after living in all sorts of exotic places from Japan to Australia and from even Antarctica to the US. But first... According to the latest CSO figures, more Irish people uh, have returned to live in Ireland during the year to April 2021 than at any time since 2007. So what is really driving so many of our expats to come home? And what are the challenges indeed faced by those choosing to return? To discuss this, I'm joined by my panel, Karen McHugh, the CEO of Safe Home Ireland, and Danielle McLaughlin, Policy Officer with the Crosscare Migrant Project. You're both very welcome to the programme. Um, Danielle, let me come to you first. I suppose my first question to you, as someone who works in this area, would be, <clears throat> to what extent did the pandemic give people a nudge to move home, people who may have been thinking about it anyway? Yeah, that's um, that's a very important question because we have a lot of uh, people talking about returning to Ireland over the past few years and, and the kind of push from the pandemic. Um, in our in our area of work, we're getting a lot of queries, general queries <coughs> about general information on returning um, that would span from uh, you know returning with children, returning with non EA partner, uh, you know accessing accommodation on return, access to entitlements and that. Um, and then we have people who are in more difficult circumstances and this was particularly heightened during the pandemic. Um, so we are connected with a lot of organisations, Irish emigrant support organisations across the world, particularly the UK, Australia and North America. Um, and they did see a massive increase in queries and support needs among the Irish community abroad. So are we talking about quite a diverse set of countries or are there <clears throat> certain countries where most Irish people tend to be returning from? There's certainly traditional destination countries, um, the ones I mentioned, possibly also New Zealand, um, and then there's some non-traditional, we would get queries. Usually people would be um, in the position of contacting uh, an embassy or consular services for support in countries a bit further away or that don't have the same kind of supports or access to emigrant support, Irish emigrant support organisations, you know, Southeast Asia or South America, um, areas of Africa as well. Might be more challenging. Very challenging considering lack of, <clears throat> well, firstly, foremost would be the language barrier and then access to entitlements and rights. Um, struggling to, you know, renew visas or to regularise themselves, and then there's the more traditional areas where people still run into trouble with visa and immigration. Um, so there's people who, particularly during the pandemic, were struggling, and we saw through our research, we, we produced some research last year. Um, but that spoke to organisations across the world and particularly uh, undocumented Irish immigrants in the US were struggling and the com- communities and the groups over there 
rallied together to fundraise and to support people and try to help people to manage just to wait out the, the pandemic. And of course, some of those Irish who want to return from America may be undocumented migrants. That's right. Um, and then they would be in that predicament where they're deciding either to leave their life, uh, you know, if they've run out of work and they're not sure when the work's going to come back in, do they uproot themselves, return to Ireland, then risk not being able to get back into the country. Um, so there was all that kind of That's predicament. That's a particularly t- tricky one, isn't it? Um, Karen, let me come to you now because Danielle touched on it there. There are, when we were researching this programme, it was really interesting to see what a logistical nightmare it can be for some returning migrants, um, emigrants, particularly in terms of the bureaucracy of having to re-establish yourself in this country. How have you encountered that with the people that you work with? Um, yes, that is um, very challenging. And I suppose a little bit about Safe Home Ireland is we are uh, an organisation that was set up in the year 2000, initially to support older Irish-born immigrants, and we now support um, all others. So I suppose with the uh, older Irish immigrants, uh, some of our work would be trying to do that uh, bureaucracy while people are still living abroad. So we would be able to work with people on a planned return basis, which is quite critical if that can if that can happen in most cases. So that would be, uh, you know, the initial uh, application for housing, for regularisation, for PPS numbers. So we would work with people Uh, to try and plan a return. However, uh, when somebody does return, and uh, hopefully Liam will be able to join us uh, shortly, uh, who returned in a crisis situation, that whole bureaucracy can be very difficult for somebody who is not used to paperwork and who's not used to doing things online because everything now uh, has practically gone online. So not everybody has that, um, I suppose, that skill set of doing forms on the computer, etc. One thing about this re-establishing and going through the paperwork and everything is the habitual residence condition, the HRC. This is something that has proven to be very challenging for a lot of returning immigrants, Danielle. Um, Can you explain to our listeners who may not be familiar, first of all, with what the habitual residence condition is and what you need to do to satisfy that condition? Okay, so the habitual residence condition is a criteria that's set with the Department of Social Protection for most payments um, and um, there's no automatic entitlement, so everybody must satisfy certain criteria. And the habitual residence condition usually sets out to uh, establish that a person is living habitually in the country. And there are certain uh, criteria guidelines for deciding officers to, to assess that. OK, so if you can satisfy the HRC, then you would potentially um, be able to access certain social welfare payments and things like that. Uh, it's also assessed with means, so there there can be you know there's the, the division of of payments that are based on contributions, and then there's payments based on means testing, mm. and all of them will also be assessed on HRC. Yeah, I'm interested in terms of social welfare, um, Karen, if because you obviously work with a lot of older returning immigrants, mm. if they come back here and they haven't been contributing to tax or to PRSI during their working lives. Are they entitled, if they can satisfy the HRC, are they entitled to a state pension or or other benefits? 
Yes, they are. If they if they meet uh, the the criteria, the HRC, as Danielle spoke about, um, but many also before they left Ireland will have worked. So quite a few people will have pensions, uh, contributory pensions that they will have been getting an Irish state pension while still living abroad. So that would be transferred um, under the EU regulations. Uh, some uh, payments can be automatically transferred as well. So it is. I suppose getting the person into the system here that they have their rights and entitlements uh, realised. Okay, um, it's extraordinary, you know, when we were uh, speaking to you before um, the program to to learn that a lot of older Irish people they may have been living abroad for several decades and they decide something happens in their in their minds, it might not be to do with a crisis situation or, or an emergency, but they decide that for some reason they want to come back to Ireland. What is, I'm curious to know what's motivating that mm. if they've been away for so long. Um, I think a couple of things. COVID, I think, uh, I suppose people started to think about life and what, they, what really mattered and what they really wanted. Uh, and some had their minds set on returning to Ireland. Uh, in terms of older Irish people, what we find, uh, a lot of people who contact us will say they want to return home to to die, unfortunately, but they would like to live here for some time. Um, and I suppose that's the, that's the challenge in our services, ensuring to try and support people come home to realise their dreams and to live uh, a life while, um, I suppose, they're living in their twilight years, that they actually can die at home. Uh, we've had some, you know, very sad call the other day from somebody who's um, was recently applied to us, and there are certain criteria to to um, must be met for safe home Ireland. But the daughter of a father who was returning, he died on Sunday. And he, his dream was to return to live in Ireland. And we're now supporting him and his daughter and his family to uh, take him home to be buried in Ireland. So, you know, there are some quite sad uh, situations as well. Wow. So you would also help to repatriate the remains of someone? Like well, we'll work with other organisations. Yeah, sure, um, yeah. And I suppose the Kevin Bell Repatriation uh, Trust is, yes. is really important yeah, one yeah. that we're working with uh, at the moment on that case. Yeah, that's a um, fantastic charity. And the Irish yeah. Chaplaincy. And there are many others around the world. So, um, But it is about the desire. Uh, I suppose I'm a returned immigrant myself. And there is part of you that home is always in your heart to some extent and you hope one day you might come home uh, similar to migrants in Ireland you know there's a little bit of them uh, you're, you're always partly in another country and in well, your it's home it's really now. interesting you say that Karen because I was very struck by what um, the singer Sean Keane said recently who I know is one of your ambassadors mm. for a safe home Ireland he said home is such a broad term there's the basic right to have a roof over one's head but also the sense of belonging, of being part of a community. And I think there's possibly a danger that we get caught up in the logistical challenges um, of of making the move to come back home. And we'll be talking plenty about that later mm. in the programme. But there is, that even if you've been away mm. for several decades, there is something about uh, remaking that connection with the place where you were mm -hmm. born, which is mm. quite profound for many people. It is. And um, Liam, who may, may be able to arrive, he, he lived abroad for 30 years. 
Hmm. Just to fill in our listeners, the, the mysterious uh, Liam who Karen <laughs> is referring to here, this is um, a, a man who is hopefully going to be on this panel, mm-hmm. who is uh, has been a service user with Safe Home Ireland. Uh, uh, no doubt the parade uh, mm-hmm. has got, uh, got mm-hmm. in his way, but uh, we'll hope for the yeah. best. Uh, sorry to interrupt yes, you, Karen. Yes, Liam um, contacted our service uh, a few months ago. Uh, with the, where We work a lot with consular service as well, so we work with consular services here in Madrid and Spain. And uh, unfortunately, Liam lost his, his job due to initially Brexit and then to the pandemic. Uh, so he be you know, became homeless and we were able to support him return home to secure housing here in Ireland. So it's um, it was always his dream to come home to Ireland as well. So I suppose being away for 30, 40, 50 years is it is a dream to come home. As Sean, our ambassador, said, it is about belonging and about a sense of community as well. Yeah. Um, now, one thing I did want to talk about or to touch on, Danielle, is this is an area that can be particularly challenging for returning emigrants who have uh, either a spouse or a de facto partner who was not born in Ireland or indeed in the EEA, the European Economic Area. So I think our listeners would be interested to know if you are an Irish emigrant living abroad currently, but your partner isn't from this part of the world, how do you deal with returning to Ireland in that situation. Yeah, and that, that's um, becoming increasingly important and, and a, a very regular query into our service. Um, we've seen an increase in that over several years. Um, it is a bit of a process. People do need to get in touch with the immigration service and, and check that they need a visa. Um, and for de facto partners, that's par- partners who aren't married but have a significant relationship, um, there's a different process. There's a pre-clearance for them. So there's uh, there, there are there is a process for people to go through, and we're usually asking people or advising people, and through our our website and our information resources to get get that started early because that can take several months, um, and it can be a little bit tricky for some people. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, if you if you're married, um, it's going to make that process easier, or. Yeah, spouses of Irish nationals can uh, enter Ireland without the visa. Who, from who any are, part of the world? Fr- no, here from vi- non-visa required countries. So that's that's okay. the distinction that immigration uh, will like have. Like the a US, li- for example. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, US, Australia. There's a, the list um, yeah. that the department has. Um, and then visa required spouses will need that visa to enter the country. Um, but will have then a right to join family. So then there is the the joined EV visa as well for for de facto partners. So there's there's a there's a few different distinctions. Um, so people will need to check that out before in advance and not book any flights in advance. Check that they meet the criteria. You know there's there's some conditions with them. Um, and what we have noticed is that there there has been. Uh, some difficulties for people, particularly in crisis situations, um, that we that did come to the fore during the pandemic, and it was something that we brought to the attention of the department. And um, when they introduced, for example, the pre-clearance um, for 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 de facto partners, um, so in situations of crisis, um, a, an Irish citizen can't return immediately with their partner because they're waiting for a visa. But if it is a critical situation, such as the, the pandemic. Um, they've become homeless, they've lost work, they're out of income. 
we, you know, we had a family from Southeast Asia in that, in that particular situation during the pandemic, uh, a couple with three children lying on, the, on their, their friend's floor for, for a few months waiting for this visa to come through. Then they had Sorry, no what act- country was that? Um, it was South, in a country Asia, yeah. in Southeast Asia. Yeah, yeah. We, we just try to keep things a little bit more, you know, private for people. Of but course, yeah. It, the, they're people from probably more non-destination, non-traditional destination countries yeah. that would come into those difficulties. Um, but the, the the issue then for coming back for them was on top of that, you know, access to other supports, uh, emergency accommodation and social welfare and schools for the kids. So there's there's a lot that comes with that and and. Normally, in a in a planned return, people will plan this all out over several months to a year. Um, but in the situation, is that what you would suggest to people who are thinking mm-hmm. about returning? You think like you need to, particularly if you're living very far away geographically from Ireland, you need to give it at least six months to a year to properly plan in advance. Absolutely, we we encourage return plans all the time, and we provide information um, through webinars, um, particularly. Since the pandemic, everything's gone online. Um, we are providing more webinars soon on 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 uh, uh, different different issues around returning, returning with the, the non EA partner, returning with children, all of that. And um, they're starting with Sydney. Uh, we're doing regional webinars starting with Sydney in in April, and then um, sorry, that's in May, and then in April we're doing others. Um, in actually, they're more emigration focus then as well for people who are trying trying to plan to emigrate again. Now, I know the Crosscare Migrant Project that you work with is connected with the Department of Foreign Affairs. Um, I mean, it can be so hard. Like, there's so many hurdles Mm. to to jump over in order to make the transition back. Do you think that the government is doing enough to help uh, returning emigrants? I mean, simple things... And we will hear more about this later in the programme. Like, there's very few reciprocal arrangements for driving licences, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like a really simple thing mm-hmm. that the government could do to make it easier for returning emigrants. Yeah, that's that's one example. Um, there has been a little bit of progress on that. Um, some people will be aware that, you know, you, you can't... Um, a US a US driving license, for example, wouldn't be accepted in Ireland, and you need to go through the whole process again Which of getting an Irish crazy, driving license. Like... Yes, and the department did recognise that. You know, there was a report that came out a few years ago, and mm. and, and and a list of recommendations that the department mm. did start to work on. They introduced uh, mandatory twelve months, um, uh, twelve lessons, sorry, to, to 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 go through before doing the test again. They were just at the six 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 lessons yeah. um, but, but someone it's still who's, a someone who's been driving for 25 years albeit on the wrong side of the road in America yeah. uh, and then comes back to Ireland and has to do six hours mm. of driving lessons I mean it, is, it can God. be a challenge and it, it's a financial challenge as well as somebody particularly needs the transport for work so it can take yeah. it can can you know act as a barrier really to accessing work for some people so there's, there are there are areas that um, the department has and cross-departmentally through the government yeah. there have been a lot of changes and there, there still would be areas that we would be encouraging progress on particularly around those crisis situations immediate access to emergency accommodation on return or a more streamlined process for the immigration situation for non-EA partners um, and more consistency in decision making around the HRC and social welfare access. Okay well before we bring this part of the programme to a close I did want to ask you Karen I'm interested to know what your experience has been of how returning emigrants 
are welcomed when they come back to Ireland? Is it difficult for them to feel that they fit back here? Um, do they do they feel the warm embrace of uh, of the Emerald Isle? Do you think? Um, I think so. Uh, I haven't heard much to the contrary. Uh, I think the process of settling in can be quite difficult. So and people rarely regret it. I suppose um, is ultimately what I'm asking. I suppose it's not even regret it. It may be sometimes. Um, other factors may come into it that uh, if there are families still abroad or grandchildren still abroad or relationship might break down, it may be just factors change mm. that they may regret it on that. Uh, obviously, there are challenges with what Daniel talked about, some of the, you know, the what we might call barriers to um, return that people may find that really difficult, be it, uh, you know, the driver's license, um, insurance, uh accessing housing, uh, accessing services, the whole bureaucracy. Uh, but I suppose our service, we have an outreach service that we can actually go and visit anybody throughout the country and we can support that person get back into the system here. So we try and, uh, I suppose, ease the challenges by meeting people face to face. So, you know, it takes time. We would say, as Danielle said, in terms of planning to return, I think it's important we do encourage people to try and make a planned return if that's possible. But equally, we would say you need to give it time to adjust to returning uh, and treat it as, as a return, a new immigration experience in coming home. Okay. So um, Karen McHugh is the CEO of Safe Home Ireland, based in Mayo. And Danielle McLaughlin. Policy Officer with the Crosscare Migrant Project. Thank you both for joining us on the programme. You are listening to Ireland's Call, a special St. Patrick's Day programme here on Newstalk. I'm Simon Tierney. Great to have you with us. Um, Before we go to the break, I did want to tell you what's on my mind, uh, because we're talking about returned emigrants today. My thoughts have been turning to great Irish people who have spent time living outside of Ireland. We're a nation of travellers, I suppose, in many ways, and have been since at least the mid-19th century. And when our fellow countrymen and women have come back to Ireland after living in far-off lands, they often bring enormous cultural wealth and experience back with them, and that enriches us all in many ways. So who are the greatest Irish emigrants? George Bernard Shaw, James Joyce, Zig and Zag. Remember when they went to Channel 4 Big Breakfast? Forgiven, not forgotten. Here's one of my favourites. What come out Shaken, not stirred. And for you? The same. How do you take it? Straight up. With a twist. Thank you, Mr. The name's Bond. James Bond. Ah, yeah, no one does it better. Huge fan. That was Pierce Brosnan, of course, one of my favourite Irish emigrants, born in Drogheda, St. Mary's Hospital, lived early part, the early part of his life in Navan before emigrating to England and becoming James Bond. I mean, that's that's a successful emigration project right there, isn't it? Um, let me know who you think are the greatest Irish emigrants. You can text me on 53106, that'll cost you 30 cents, or you can tweet me at Tierney Simon. Now, my next guest is a Mayo man who lived in 
probably one of the most unusual places around the world. Neil Sheridan lived in Antarctica for a period, uh, living and working there. Listen, um, Neil, it's great to have you on the programme. What brought you down there in the first place to Antarctica? Hiya, Sheridan. Thanks for having me on. Um, I suppose it was just um, the adventure. Um, I seen years ago that you could go down there on cruises and they were very expensive and mostly it would you know, avoid them. But I was working in Australia at the time and I seen an ad in the back of the newspaper that was looking for people to go down to work. And um, I just went with that and put an application in and basically that started the whole process. So do, were you applying for a specific job, Neil, to work at one of the bases? Yeah, so my background is plumbing. So they take on a lot of trades for um, uh, maintaining the research station down there. And uh, so basically I applied for a trade role um, in the maintenance. Okay, fantastic. And then when you arrived there, I'm really curious to know what the what the experience of actually living in one of the Antarctic bases is like. Were you with the, the British Antarctic Survey or one of the, the others? I was with the British. I went down twice. So the first time I went down with the Australian Antarctic Division and the second time was with the British Antarctic Survey. Um, like, look, it's really remote. It is. It's exactly what you think. Like, we lived in a small. We we'll say the first time I went down was to Davis Station. It's a small research station. I think in the summer it has about a population of ninety people in it. But there's no other stations nearby, so that's kind of the the crew you're with for the few months. Um, that was five and a half months we spent down there that time. Um, but look, it, it was amazing. Like, you know, even though it's so remote and you're stuck with the same crew, like, I mean, you wouldn't be bored at all. Like, there's loads to do and. There's um, lots to get out and about and see, and, and the, the Aussies are brilliant for it. Like their whole work-life balance that they have in Australia, they bring that down there as well. Like so, you get to to make the most of your weekends as well. Okay, so what would you do at the weekend? Would you go on trips to other bases, yeah. or to go camping or something like that? Yeah, well, they've got these uh, remote huts, so they're in the Vestfold Hills. It's uh, a 400 square kilometer rocky outcrop in um, East Antarctica. Now. It's pretty small, but it's the second largest rocky outcrop in the Antarctic. But they've got huts dotted, ar- dotted around that. And um, scientists use them when they're doing field studies and things like that. The nearest one is eight kilometres, and the furthest is, uh, I think it's 30-something kilometres. But you go out there, there's no internet, there's no phone, there's no radio. It's just a two-way radio back to the station. Like, so it's very very removed from the world. Like, so you just have to you go out there and bring a few drinks and a bit of food and deck your cards and get the weekend out of it. That sounds great. Now, take me through the process. So I want you to imagine that you're back in your bedroom in the base in Antarctica. A shared bedroom or your own bedroom? Uh, your own bedroom, yeah. Okay, Just your own like bedroom. Small and container. Nice. Oh, okay, yeah, cool. Um, what happens if you decide that you want to go outside? How do you prepare yourself? What do you put on to go outside into the, the freezing Antarctic weather? Yeah, look, we were there in the summertime. I mean, it, it is freezing. It's below zero, but like a, a minus five down there would be like a plus five in Ireland because like it's so dry. Um, okay. So if you're going between some of the um, the different buildings in the station, like you just put on your bathrooms, the big heavy boots, and just some like, you know, you could even put on loungewear to walk between the buildings. Like, But if you're going to venture out a bit further, you'd have to have um, to have these bumblebee kind of outfits that are like plastic. Um, so just like keep the heat in and they can be spotted from a distance if you go missing or know if you straight away straight away yeah and tell me i mean uh, presumably there's no real access to fresh vegetables or fruit because nothing no, grows there no. does it? 
No, nothing. When the ship comes in at the start of the season, you get a bit of fresh food, uh, but it, it's gone, like, within three weeks. And if there's any delays with the ship as well, like, you know, it could be gone by the time the ship gets there. Um, but after that, it's just, like, it's tinned stuff and frozen stuff. And you do get some of the vegetables being, like, kind of, the kind of, like, liquid packs. They're still yeah. solid, like, you know. But, um, like, the food was good down there. We did, um, the first year, we had a German chef. And an Aussie chef, and like, I mean, the stuff they can make out of that, like, is it is really good. Yeah, and um, what about socialising then? Like, was there a bar in the base? Yes. Like, how would you get a, a few drinks into you of a Friday, say? Yeah, so <laughs> look, there was plenty of socialising, and there was plenty of nights. Like, the Aussies are great for that. They actually had a brewery down there called the Vestfolds Brewery, and it was the most southerly brewery in the world. So we had like brew nights, you know, maybe two or three nights a week. Um, and you basically be like one night would be bottling, one night would be cleaning the empties, and another night would be mixing up a batch. They like stouts, ales, lagers. Um, How was well you could bring down. Uh, it, was, uh, <laughs> it, it was okay. When you're stuck, you're stuck. Like you can get used to it. <laughs> it's not not going to compete with the Irish stuff yet. It could never compete with it. No, 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 no. It's it's, it's miles away. To be fair, it's miles away. Yeah, uh, this is this is. Uh, I've got a question uh, for you, um, Neil, because there, like, it sounds like it's quite a social atmosphere. Do, would there ever be emergent relationships that would happen in Antarctica? You do. You do get a like few, a bit of yeah, romance. I actually. I tell you, that year I was down there with the Aussies, there's a couple down there that got married about two years ago. So that was about seven years ago we were down there. And that was from the meeting down there. So there is, no, the numbers, the numbers aren't even at all. Like, I mean, it was about 90% males to 10% females when oh, I was really? down there. So it's, yeah, yeah. Okay. So there will be some, there will be some, but it's, it's not across the board. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. And then yeah. finally, <laughs> before I let you go, Neil, um, uh, how was it transitioning yeah. back to Ireland then after being in such an exotic place, really, that's so different to Ireland? What was it like coming back to yeah. live here? Um, well, I think I went back to Australia, you see, so it was going from the very cold to the very warm. That was one big extreme. But like, moving back to Ireland, it's just something you, you get you get on with it. You know, it's, um, it's a, it, there's a bit of a transition at first, like, but I mean, you can adapt to life easily enough again. You know, things can be a little bit backwards here and a little bit slow, but, you know, that can be a good thing as well. Okay, so are you happy to be back in Ireland now after your time in the, the Southern Hemisphere? Oh, yeah. I am, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're living back over in Mayo now again. Like, and Look, I love the West and I love Ireland. You know, it's got so much good going for it. Like, um, everywhere you go, there's a great atmosphere. Like, it is such a small place, you know. It, yeah, we're very happy to be back. Well, Neil, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you and uh, thank you for sharing your experience of living in one of the coldest places in the world. And that was Neil Sheridan from County Mayo, um, who used to work as a plumber in Antarctica. Um, my next guest is a man who spent time living in Japan. So from Antarctica to Japan now, um, his name is Brendan Bratnock. Brendan, thank you for joining us on Ireland's Call this St. Patrick's Day. How are you today? Very well, Simon. And you? Are you are you still there, Brendan? Can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you now. Um, you're not still in Japan, are you? No, no, not quite. <laughs> I'm in uh, I'm in a slightly different place in Chikor. <laughs> okay, just down the road. Come here. Yeah, tell me this. Um, when you were working out in Japan, um, when you were living out there, I suppose 
what were you what were you doing for work? Did you have a job out there? Yes, so I went over to Japan in 2016, July 2016, as part of the JET program, which I'm always, some people know what it is, some people don't. The JET program is the Japan Exchange, um, Exchange and Teaching Program, I think is what it actually taught. Jesus, I forgot that, that's terrible. Uh, which is essentially, you go over supposedly as a cultural ambassador, um, which is another way of saying you're an English teacher who teaches them all about the country you come from. So the four of me and my school was from Canada. Um, so he taught them all about Canada. I taught them all about Ireland. But it was essentially teaching English in association or in cooperation with Japanese teachers in the schools. So an English teacher would be the short answer to that, yeah. Okay. And were you in Tokyo or what city were you in? I was in Sapporo, which is in the north of the country in Hokkaido. So there are, you know, the four main islands, and Hokkaido is the far north, and it's the second biggest of the four main ones. I suppose in Ireland we sometimes see Asian cultures as perhaps a little more challenging to fit into, um, more foreign perhaps, uh, whereas Latin cultures feel less remote sometimes. So I'm just wondering, Brendan, was it difficult to fit in or to feel like you fit in during your time living there? I think so. I think some some people seem to fit in okay if they're if they go along with all the cultural the unwritten rules and there are many in every, every culture and every country as you know yourself. For me, I certainly found Japan more challenging. I I'd spent a year in China uh, 2014 2015 for my for college for a year abroad and I certainly found Japan more challenging. I think it's a very tight culture. There are a lot of unwritten rules that if you're not from there fitting in is much more difficult but you you kind of get you kind of get used to it after three three to six months i found i was getting used to it some people getting in touch on twitter at tierney simon if you want to tweet us here uh on ireland's call one person says mr roy Keane or mr r Keane to give uh, the formal title um another texter and these are two definite definite Hall of Famers, Terry Wogan and uh, Cork's Graham Norton, of course, two very famous uh, Irish emigrants uh, who have had great success in British television, of course. Now, we are speaking with people today on Ireland's Call. Our focus is very much on the returned Irish, people who have spent time living abroad to share their experiences with us. And Quiva de Barra joins me now, a name that will be familiar to many of you. Quiva, of course, is the CEO of Trocra, and she lived and worked in Malawi and Mozambique for a number of years. Quiva, you're very welcome to Ireland's Call. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Great to be with you. Quiva, I'm curious to know, apart from your work there for Trocra in Malawi and Mozambique when you were living there, what what was it like living in countries whose, I suppose, way of life, living standards would be considered very different to Ireland's? It's very different in some respects, but very similar in other respects. So Southern Africa and Malawi and Mozambique are countries and cultures which are extremely warm and friendly. Um, So when I moved to Mozambique, I went with my husband and my nine-month-old son, and immediately we were welcomed incredibly warmly, not just by colleagues whom whom I, I worked with, 
but even by people you'd meet in the street who would greet us, who would stop my husband as he was walking around with the baby in a sling to chat to him, to marvel at this modern man carrying his baby around in the middle of the day and engage you in conversation. And equally in Malawi, we found that the people were incredibly open, really keen to engage, curious, interested and passionate about progress in their own countries. So passionate about what they wanted to do and the changes that they wanted to bring about. I was very lucky in that I had spent a year and a half when I was a child living in Malawi. So I had something of a benchmark, you know, in mid 1970s Malawi, Malawi was, as it remains, one of the poorest countries in the world. But at the time, politically, it was under a very repressive dictatorship. So when I went back with my family in 2015, my husband and my two sons, then aged six and eight, I was able to see the tremendous progress that had been made. And, and I think the Malawian people were rightly proud of the progress that had been made. But it was also really clear that climate change was having a massive impact on Malawi and on the whole region. Of and course. that really dominated the three years I spent in Malawi, both personally in terms of things like disruption constantly to electricity supplies, but also in terms of the work context. Wow. Yeah. To, to your own electricity supplies. So, so when you were living in Malawi, then in 2015, there was the, the hunger crisis there, of course. What would your living arrangements be for for staff from Trogra? Do you, do you have a, a house that you can call your own there or, or do you have a shared accommodation or how does it work for for NGOs? Well, well so first of all, of course, the vast majority are, of our staff are, are, are local. So they're Malawians. So of they course, live, yeah. you know, they live as, as everybody does, you know, with their families and their family homes. And so I lived in, in a family home with, with my family. And we're very lucky because the part of town that we lived and worked in was a bit of a hub for NGOs. A lot of the other NGOs, including Concern Gold Trokra, we were all located quite close to one another. Um, and so as well as our Malawian network of friends, we also had our network of friends and colleagues amongst the NGOs. Um, but, you know, Malawi is an amazing country, absolutely incredible. The people are remarkably resourceful. But of course, and they have to be because the challenges are also huge. So, you know, the level of service and infrastructure in Malawi, it's unimaginable, really, when you're sitting in Ireland, where effectively we have everything that we want on our doorstep. And I know we do complain about you know, a lot of things in Ireland and, and the high levels of taxes. And of course, we do need to hold the, the government to account for service provision. But in Malawi, the level of service provision was extremely low because the government was operating with a very thin resource base. It's not a country that has its own of natural course. resource base at all. Um, Quiva, I remember a few years ago when you were appointed CEO, you said that um, Trokra is deeply embedded in Irish culture. I wonder, how does this translate on the ground when you're in places like Malawi and Mozambique? For example, are people there, would they be aware that the services and the charity that is being provided to them is coming in some sense from the Irish people? Yes, to a degree. I mean, I think what's important to say is that Trokra works through a, a partnership model. So we work solely through local civil society organizations and with the local government. Um, so we, we don't wave a big flag around kind of who we are. We don't think that's appropriate because really development is in the hands of people in their own country and context. And we're there to provide support, solidarity, 
funding, of course, and Troca's Lenten campaign is absolutely key to that. Without the Lenten campaign, we could do nothing, literally. Um, but we also provide solidarity, and sometimes that means international solidarity. So, for example, I mentioned climate change in Malawi. Troca advocates on climate change and tries to ensure that the Irish government, the European Union, play their full role in climate change funding, adaptation, mitigation, limiting our emissions. And that's part of our role as well. But locally, people appreciate first and foremost, the support we give to local organizations, because change has to yeah. come from within. Uh, before I let you go, and I wish we had more time with you, Quiva, um, I'm asking a number of guests this today. When you were living in African countries, what was the thing that you missed most about Ireland? Uh, obviously, family and friends, without question, even with the great technology that we have nowadays, particularly when you've got two young children who are growing up and they miss their cousins and their grandparents, I'd have to say that would be the main thing. Quiva, you're very good to join us. Quiva Debarra is the CEO of Trocra. Hope you're having a great St. Patrick's Day. You can text us on 53106. Tell us what you're up to today. We're speaking about Irish, returned Irish emigrants, people who have lived abroad but are now back on our fair shores. And my next guest is a singer and songwriter, and she also made music for TV shows for Disney and various other people while she was living in Los Angeles. And then she moved to Spain, and finally she's back here in Ireland now. And I'm joined by Anne-Marie Cullen. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining us here. It's great to have you on the programme. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely being here. So tell me... um, you lived in LA for quite a number of years. Yeah, 21. 21 years. 21 years. Wow. Um, tell me, what sort of programs were you writing music for? How did you get into that whole area of commercial music making? Right, by chance. I mean, I went there, I left in 95 um, for adventure. I was in my early 20s. Uh, did the usual wait on tables. Uh, That's the classic it's Hollywood cliche, thing, isn't it? I know, but funnily, with a script in your back pocket. Yeah, you know. <laughs> something like that. But funnily enough, um, when I was waiting on tables, I uh, struck up a conversation with this producer from Disney, and you know, we got talking. I mentioned I was a singer-songwriter at that time. I'd had a song in a very small movie, and he said, "Look, I'm a producer. I'm working on this uh, TV show about a rock star mom." but we're having a really hard time finding a songwriter to write to lyrics. He was like, can you write music to lyrics? And I was like, yes. So, of course uh, I can. Of course no I can. Problem. I can do anything. <laughs> um, so I actually legged it home on my break and grabbed a CD, gave it to him before he left. And long story short, I had the job within five days. He, get, he sent me the next day um, the lyrics. I wrote the song, gathered my friends around, and we recorded it. And that was my first. That was my first professional job. And was that for a TV for show? For Disney. It was called for So Dis- Weird. So Disney. if you have okay. uh, if you have Disney Plus, it's on there. It's called So Weird. It was. Uh, it's about a rock star mom, and it's kind of like an X Files for kids, really. You know. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, okay, so then you started so that, building up the CV and started exactly. creating more music for for programs. Yeah. Well, I was uh, pursuing my own um, solo career at the time, so from there I, I was lucky enough to get a, a publishing deal with Warner Chapel, and then, uh, long story short, um, I. Uh, 
got dropped from Warner Chapel a few years later when there was a big shake up with, you know, when Time Warner was, you know, merging with AOL and and then I started an indie band with uh, my friend Cynthia Catania called Saucy Monkey, which did actually quite well in Ireland. So we actually, our music uh, got placed in tons of shows uh, like Nickelodeon's Drake and Josh, iCarly. That was kind of by chance as well. You yeah. know, the, a producer just heard our stuff and, and liked it. And and when, then, you're, when, you, when you have a song that you've written and that mm-hmm. you've performed and it gets picked up by a television program. Right. What is the process there? I mean, is is that quite a lucrative position to be in as a songwriter? Yeah, it can be. It can be. So, um, uh, especially if you get a theme song, and I was lucky enough to get the theme song for Disney. For Disney, it was different. They hired me to be the writer for the show. and uh, But for Saucy Monkey... Um, we owned the rights, we had everything, and, the, uh, and the, those shows licensed our m- music. So we kind of kept more ownership. So even though it wasn't a theme song, um, because we owned everything and because it got played so much, um, like there's a, a new audience for kids every like two years. So those shows, they have a long lifespan. I'm still getting royalties for those. And really? Yeah, yeah. So it can be, it can be uh, lucrative. Um, it's the only way to make money now, I'm telling you, because you know the likes of streaming and Spotify, it's very hard to make a money. Yeah, or yeah. advertising perhaps yeah. as well. Um, then in terms of making music in your own right um, as a songwriter, um, over the last year or so, you've produced a number of singles, most recently Harrod Street, which I was listening to again uh, this morning, and it's such a moving, moving song. It oh, is, thank you. And what really struck me about it, uh, Anne-Marie, is that there is so much about the migrant experience mm-hmm. in the song. Um, it's called Harrod Street. Harrod Street is in West Hollywood. It is. That's where you, you spent time living. You lived on that street. Yeah, I did. So what was what was it like living there? Oh, it was great. Uh, West Hollywood is, uh, is fabulous. Um... You know, on the one hand, uh, you have the very glitzy uh, selling sunsets. You know, that that office was actually a few blocks from my house, you know. So, yeah. And then on the other hand, like if you go down the hill, you're in gay town, basically. And, you know, I'm gay, so I kind of... (laughs) You find yourself gravitating. Yeah, so, you know, so, uh, yeah, if you walked up the hill, you were, you know, in the likes of selling sunset. It wasn't unusual to see... Um, stars, you know, having their morning coffee. So it was trippy. Uh, yeah. It really was. Uh, um, yeah, it really was a very uh, w- weird and wonderful uh, experience. I wonder sometimes about living in somewhere like West Hollywood or LA in general as an Irish person, because it's so different to here. Does there come a point where you feel like yeah, I'm a I'm an LAer or whatever the equivalent of Dubliner is. Like, did you feel like you belonged in LA? You know, it's funny. I felt like I was having the best extended vacation in LA. Mm. That was prolonging my adolescence because it's very easy to kind of stay feeling young in LA, LA because everyone is very kind of chasing their dreams, and there's a lot of optimism uh, and around. And a lot of plastic surgery. And a lot of plastic <laughs> surgery, yes, that is also true. But I never felt it was home, believe it or not. Mm. I only felt that 
Dublin was home. Yeah. And if I was, it had rained more, would that have made you feel... It may, possibly, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> no, but even when I lived in Barcelona, it's funny, you know, I, you know, because I, I moved back to Dublin after living 25 years away. But any time I would visit uh, Dublin, I always would tell people, oh, yeah, I'm going home to Dublin. I, I would never said I'm going back to Dublin. It was always home. And... Uh, and I always felt like that. So I think even with Barcelona, it and they felt like really great places that I was visiting on holiday that kind of lasted years. That's really interesting that you say that, that you always referred to it as going home to, to Dublin or to Ireland. I think that will probably strike a chord with a lot of our listeners. Yeah. I think there is that element of even if you've been away for a long time, Home is home is home. Home is home. And I, yeah, and even when people in LA were uh, asked me, like, when are you coming home? As into LA, I would nearly correct them. I'd be like, I'm going back, <laughs> you know, next yeah, week or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wish uh, I wish I could speak to you all afternoon, Anne Marie. Um, before we let you go, you have got your guitar. I with do. You. I wish that I practiced Harrod Street after you're hoping. I, no, but I want to hear But the I'm going to do well. it. Yeah, I want to so, hear the other. What are you going to play for us? Uh, I'm going to uh, play a single that I released uh, last year called What I Once Meant to You. Great. And I'm just going to do like a verse in a chorus or in a verse. Okay, so What just, I Once met, Meant to You. Uh, this is Anne-Marie Cullen. Uh, take it away in your own time. If you ever remember what I once meant to you, I will sigh. Relief, baby. If you ever remember what I once meant to you, I will Thanks for having me on, Kieran. Beautiful, Time. beautiful. Thank you so much, Amory. That's 
really nice to to hear one of your songs thank you so much for sharing that with us that is Anne-Marie Cullen um so we're gonna go to our next guest now is um Helen O'Rahilly she worked for the BBC for many years living in London uh, many years many decades she was away from Ireland but she's back in Ireland now once again after almost three decades Helen thank you so much for joining us on Ireland's call lovely to be here Simon Helen tell me this um you were obviously living in London for North London I believe for a very long time how long did it take you to finally make that decision to to do the transition back to the home country well, um, I was coming back to Ireland quite a lot uh, due to uh, my aging mother and her sister who lived with her. So I'd, um, I was coming back so often, I, I often thought uh, I should be twinned with Holly Head. Um, I'd hop in the car and come over for either a long weekend or a week or so forth to, to look after them. They were both in their mid to late 80s. And um, so I was always in and around Dublin. Um, and also I have a place out in Connemara. So for the last 10 years, uh, I'd fly to Knock and we'd have a couple of weeks around the West. So the longing was always there, and but the move uh, happened to come post-Brexit, really, which I saw a big change in when I saw a big change in, in Britain. And so many Remainers, like myself, were, were gobsmacked by the vote um, that it sort of piqued my interest then because I'd been, as, I, as you said, 30 years, Travel the length and breadth of England, Scotland, and Wales have been away everywhere, South America, the States, the Far East with the BBC. It had given me a wonderful, wonderful working life. And I kind of was getting to the stage that I thought, I've kind of done all I want to do. Now, I'm still in my 50s, so it wasn't time for retirement yet. Um, but then finally, uh, it was a case of really um, my mum was getting very ill and my poor aunt, who's her younger sister, was trying to look after her, and we were paying carers and so forth. And I finally thought, right, um, I'm going to sell up in London, and I'm going to go back. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, go and ahead. As well as that, as well as that uh, you know, to be quite honest and frank, I, uh, it was the end of a 19-year relationship as well, which came out of the blue, and that was the final straw. So the house went on sale, and I was back living certainly in my mum's house for the first few months before I could buy somewhere. Um, so I was back within three months. So it was very sudden, you know, at the end. Okay. Um, so a big change after so many years. Um, uh, it's a huge logistical challenge for for anyone to, to relocate back to Ireland, Helen. And I know I was reading your your brilliant dispatches in the Irish Times um, a couple of years ago about the challenges involved. And I'm wondering, what advice would you give to someone who is making a similar decision to yourself to return to Ireland? Um, well, I'd first of all, say anticipate the sort of administrative treacle you're going to be in, because uh, that's what it, my, my articles in the, the Times were about, was like the, the slow progress... <laughs> I don't know if the word progress, the slow way that uh, you get the basics, whether it's the PPS card or the registration of your UK uh, car. At one stage, they wanted to charge me. They had, they had to make up a new category for the car. And you swear it was a Bentley. It wasn't. It was a second-hand Audi. But uh, they wanted to charge me €27,000 for VRT. 
<laughs> because they hadn't a car like it. And eventually, this is the decent side. Eventually, I, I mean, I nearly faint, I nearly died when I got the letter. Eventually, I got through to the, the man in charge down in Cork, who was the nicest civil servant I've ever spoken to. And we were on the phone for an hour. And he basically said, look, we've made a mistake. that You've no VRT to pass. You've been away 30 years, you know. So in one way, you're pulling your hair out. And then the next day, you have this gas, a lovely conversation with somebody. And it's all sorted. But I'm wondering so what's going on, Helen, because I think a number of people uh, have had similar experiences to yourself after returning to Ireland. Is there something to be said for having a more centralised system in place to make it easier for emigrants to make the transition? It certainly would. It certainly would be because you're on your own. Uh, at least I had a house to to go to, so I had accommodation. So I could, you know, and I've got, uh, you know, the laptop and I, you know, I'm a good, because of my job and all that in the BBC, I'm a good communicator and so forth. So I was able to to, to use those skills. But I, I fear for anybody older or who isn't online savvy or anything like that, um, you know, I mean, you have to start from scratch again. You can't get this without that. You can't get, you know, I was then looking for a carer's allowance, which, you know, is means tested, of course. And uh, you can't get that without a card. You can't get your uh, Irish, your UK, your UK car changed until you've got an Irish driving license. So there's like this cascade, you know, that a central office would, would really help with where you basically give them all your details uh, from your national insurance contributions in the UK to your reg number, to your this, to your that, and they would take you down that path because I think if you're not ready for it, it's it's a huge hurdle. It really is. It seems and like a no-brainer. It really seems like the more people like yourself that I talk to, both in preparation for this program and live on air today, it makes sense that the government would establish a centralised office to, if we're serious about bringing back our emigrants and welcoming them back to this country, then that that's something that really needs to be done. Yes, it does, and it would have helped. I mean, I did look at websites. Uh, there are a few, and there are some returning to Ireland websites, but there's nothing that will... They just give you information, and you have to write it all down, and then you have to do it yourself. I mean, of course, you, you have to take some responsibility for such a huge change. And, you know, when I think of what I, what I went through, I mean, it's nothing got in the current period with, with Ukraine and refugees. It was, it's nothing compared to what those poor people face. And how wonderful to see Ireland has opened up so quickly. And I look over at Britain and see how difficult they're making it for, for the same poor people. So, you know, we can do it. You know, we can do marvellous things. And that's one thing I've loved about when coming back to Ireland is that the heart is there. And when the heart is there, we can do extraordinary things. And given, given the numbers are so big now coming back, whether it's Brexit or through COVID, you know, there mm-hmm. will be that flow of people. There will be that demand. And, you know, it's now t- taken me nearly two years um, to, to, to get a house, to get finally settled, to get, you know, various, um, you know, my, sadly, my mum da- died and then my aunt died. And I've had to wrestle with everything from the coroner to a hospital to um, solicitors selling a house. And, you know, it's been it's literally been a full time job for me. And as well as you know, have you got this uh, this certificate? Have you got that certificate? And I have to say, the only people who are very good are the revenue. The revenue are on, on top of everything, you know? Tell so me, Helen, before I let you go, um, yeah. because you left here in the 80s, 
to live in London and you come back after a number of decades. Is the is was it an Ireland that you recognised when you when you finally came back here? Uh, there were places in Dublin I'd never heard of. I'd never I'd never heard of Ongar. I'd never you know places sub- whole new suburbs. There were roads I didn't know existed. Um, you know I mean the it, the sort of the spirit is still there. The spirit is still familiar. And the lovely, the lovely warm, warm nature is is so is so wonderful. I've got great neighbours now in, in where I live in, in Dublin, and it's a very different feel to how it was in in London, where people tend to keep themselves to themselves, even though you live beside them for twenty years. Um, so it's still at the heart the very same place I left in 1988. It's richer, definitely, but it has its awful, awful problems: dereliction, homelessness, etc. Um, but very much the heart is still there, and I think that's that's lovely, and that's what I hang on to, and I, I have not regretted one minute of coming back to Ireland. Wow, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that, uh, Helen. A real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for coming on the program today. That was Helen O'Rahilly speaking to us after her three decades of living in London, and now happily back in Ireland. If you've been listening to the show for the last hour and a half you'll know about the mysterious Liam. Um, Liam is a man who has benefited from the services of Safe Home Ireland. Karen, of course, the CEO who we were speaking to earlier in the programme, this is an organisation that helps Irish emigrants to return, to repatriate back to Ireland. And Liam is one of those people. Liam, thank you so much for coming into us here in studio. It's really nice to to meet you. Tell me, just as a little bit of context, how long were you away from Ireland and where were you living and why, I suppose, were you there? Uh, 29 years, practically 30. And I went there to teach English. Uh, I decided to experience life on the continent, somewhere on the continent. Didn't know where, but there were, probably still are, magazines, international magazines, for teachers of English and uh, various offers. There were offers from Greece, Italy and Spain. So I answered some from all of them. And the first one that answered was from Galicia in the northwest of Spain, city of Coruña, and offered me a contract in a small language academy. So I decided, yes, I'll take it. Especially as, you know, it said that our Celtic ancestors came from there. And having spent almost 30 years there, I can assure you it's true. They look like us, or we look like them, if you prefer. And the sense of humour is the same. They've lost a lot of the Celtic tradition, but they still have a form of bagpipe and so on. But they've lost the language, of course. Their own language is Gallego, which has Celtic influences in it, but it's not a Celtic language. It's very like Portuguese. Yeah. So I went to work there. And when that contract finished, I thought, well, maybe I'll go back to Ireland. Maybe I'll go somewhere else. But then I received other offers. So I stayed on and on and on. And I was quite happy there until there was a series of economic depressions in Spain. The third one was, the second one was very bad. third one wasn't so bad. But before it finally ended, the COVID came in. So the combination of the two meant that thousands of people were put out of work, me included. There were no no future in teaching English. And what happened, what happened to you then, Liam? Well, I held on for as long as I could, spending my 
and I say things fairly liberally, <laughs> foolishly. Uh, then I decide, well, the only alternative is go back to Ireland. And through an official of Coruña Council, City Council, I was put in touch with uh, Safe Home Ireland. And what did they do for you? The City Council official? What did Safe Home Ireland do for you? Smoothed the way in every sense and made things very easy and smooth. Were you in a, a very a particularly tricky situation at that point in Spain? No, except economically I was in a very bad situation without yeah. any future. So you felt you work. needed some assistance? Uh, yes, whatever assistance I could get. Uh, I was also in contact with the Irish Embassy in Madrid. Uh, my passport had uh, finished. I didn't notice because I didn't intend to come back, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So they were very nice about it and they said, don't worry, we'll we'll give you a temporary one for one year, which I still have. And then in Ireland, when you, you, if you want to renew that, just hand it in and ask for a new one and so on. So here I am. So it's it's an extraordinary situation because if I'm reading this correctly, it seems as if you had resolved to spend the rest of your life living in your adopted country. And Not so much, but uh, I had at the back of my mind the idea of coming back eventually, you know. But I was enjoying life there. Yeah. It was very good. And of course... There's really no winter compared to the winter here. No, yeah. It gets a bit cold, yeah, but not like here, you know, not like so the So if winters. you've been living abroad for 30 years, what was that, that niggle in the back of your head that was motivating you to, to, to eventually come back here? Well, I'm a very Irish, Irish man. I speak Gaelic. I play the traditional instruments. I love the native culture. And I kept in touch as well as I could while I was in Spain. But uh, I intended to come back eventually, yeah. But it wasn't an immediate priority, if you know what I mean. And did Safe Home mm-hmm. Ireland and other people help to establish, re-establish you here? Uh, did they help you to find somewhere to live? Yes. It was temporary accommodation. Uh, and then the city council offered me a flat in Finglas, which I accepted. And I'm very content there. Yeah. So... Now that you're back in Ireland, it must seem like a very different place to the one that you left. Not very different, but there have been some big changes, yes. Uh, before going, I lived here in Dublin, in Fibsborough, which I remember as a quiet, friendly area. Uh, well, I've been back there to see how it is. It hasn't changed that much, but the shops that I remember, the small shops are gone. Now they're big supermarkets and big cafes cafe places, cafeterias in Spanish, and so on. And in that way, it's different. But still quiet with red brick houses and little gardens. I stayed in one of those, had a flat in one of those. And now out in Finglas, it's much more wide open, you know, housing estates here and there, big green spaces. Very quiet. That's what I like about it. Although some people told me it's dangerous out there. But so far, I found the people very nice, very friendly. Okay. Well, Liam, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I wish we had more time to speak with you here on Ireland's Call. But we wish you all the best on your new adventure here back in Ireland. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very, very much. And that's Liam O'Callaghan, who 
was able to come back to Ireland um, with thanks to the efforts of Safe Home Ireland, an organisation which helps to repatriate people back to this country. Now, um, something quite exciting is about to happen. It's time for this. Yes, indeed. Those are the patriotic notes of the West Wing because we are going to pretty close to the West Wing. We are going to Sean Defoe, News Talk's political correspondent and indeed with Barra Media, who is on the ground in Washington, D.C. for the St. Patrick's Day celebrations. Sean, how are things going over there? Good. I was really hoping when you played that music that I was going to be able to say, yes, I'm in the White House and I'm in the press room looking at the podium and checking out whether Joe Biden has changed the decor at all from, from what Donald Trump had the last time I was here. But unfortunately, that's all been scotched by Michal Martin's COVID diagnosis. So we've all been barred from going into the building lest we happen to, to bring it in. So I'm coming to you, as you say, from pretty close to the White House, uh, as is the, the teacher who is literally across the road from the White House at, and as we speak, talking to Joe Biden uh, virtually on a, on a Zoom call or a, whatever they're using, Microsoft Teams or whatever it is the White House prefers in that sense. So not quite in there, but uh, as close as you can get at the minute. Yeah, and I understand, Sean, you'll have more details about uh, that conversation between the US president and the Taoiseach on the hard shoulder later. But um, before that, uh, it has probably thrown all the plans uh, out the window, really. I mean, has there been, have any of the events been able to go ahead as planned? So they are going ahead without the Taoiseach and without pretty much the entire Irish delegation. So uh, literally for the last <laughs> couple of minutes. So yeah, it's but he's the star of the show, Sean. Well, he is. He's the, he's the guest of honour. So it's gone ahead without the guest of honour. So it's basically all the Irish Americans who are uh, who are getting to, to have the shindig. So him and himself and Biden, as I say, they've just started their meeting. They actually just made a couple of remarks uh, on the way in there. Biden saying he got to meet him for about seven and a half minutes from a bit of a distance last night at the Ireland Funds dinner before the Taoiseach's diagnosis came in. And Biden actually as well praising um, Ireland's response to the refugee crisis. Michal Martin, to be fair to him, making a bit of light of it, saying last year they spoke virtually from across the Atlantic. This year they're speaking virtually from across the street. So at least they're getting closer, if not quite in there entirely. The Speaker's Lunch, which is one of the, the other big pieces where they all trek up to Capitol Hill after the bilateral, that's going ahead. Nancy Pelosi saying this morning she's undergoing uh, rigorous testing after meeting and sitting next to the Taoiseach last night before his, his positive test came in, but that she's still going to host it and the President will, will speak at that as well. And then they're all going back to the White House for the shamrock ceremony. But unclear as to who's actually going to hand over the bowl of shamrock. Well, I was just going to ask you, Sean, because I mean... Was the Taoiseach the only minister in the D.C. delegation? Surely there was other ministers uh, that travelled with him. Or are they all in other cities? They're all in other cities. There's a good few, but half the cabinet is in the States, but they're all spread across the place. The closest is probably Eamon Ryan, who's in New York, but it was too late. Really sure, an old greyhound bus down from Manhattan. <laughs> it should be there in no <laughs> time. 
it's a three hour it's a fine train it's a three hour train down you nip through Philadelphia you could get there but no they've decided not to do that they're basically they're just scotching it so it looks as though it'll be Ambassador Dan Mulhall he was part of the Taoiseach's delegation but he underwent extra testing last night so we think he's going to be the one who's actually going to hand it over to him later on Okay now this was obviously going to be the pinnacle of your career Sean Um, on a Hmm. personal level how devastated are you not to get through the doors of the White House yeah, well, like, look, I obviously... But you're an old hand. Before. You were there before. Well, this, I mean, this is exactly what I was going to say. I've been in there before, at least, even if not in there with, with Biden. So I was really interested to see how the two of them got on and see what Biden's White House is like. I feel a lot of, quite a lot of the, the journalists who came on this trip uh, that hadn't been before, so I feel it for them. But I feel way more for Micheál Martin. I mean, this was his last chance. He didn't get to do it last year because of the pandemic. This is going to be his last year as Taoiseach before he hands over to Leo Varadkar. And the man, the, the, I mean, the thing that uh, no matter who I spoke to last night, diplomats or different TDs and senators over here or anyone, Irish-Americans, they're all just saying he has absolutely no luck, does Micheál Martin. No matter what goes on, he goes from, you know, take, take, finally gets to the pinnacle of being Taoiseach and he goes into an international pandemic and comes out of that straight into a war. Uh, every bit of luck has just gone against him and unfortunately it has this time. So there is a chance that I'll be back hopefully next year or the following year. Uh, Micheál Martin unfortunately won't. So it's a big, uh, even though he's kind of, taking it on the chain and trying to make light of it, it, it's definitely got to be a huge career blow for him. And what's the feeling on the streets of D.C. now? Do they have a parade similar to New York or is it more low-key there? Well, it, it's a bit more low-key here because it's a Thursday and they don't have the day off in the same way we do. So there is a parade planned for this weekend, all right. I don't think it's quite as big as New York. New York is one of the biggest, although apparently Savannah, uh, which is where Minister Helen McEntee has gone to, is actually technically the biggest St. Patrick's Day Parade and they're doing that this weekend so uh, yeah a little bit low down here I mean the Irish bars around uh, have been been a bit excited but other than that it's not there's not a huge buzz Sure now that the Taoiseach isn't going to the White House you can clock off after this Sean and head off a couple (laughs) of points yourself Um, listen Sean uh, thank you so much for that dispatch from DC we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us as I said at the beginning of that Sean We'll be speaking on News Talk a little bit later in the programme to talk about um, to talk about the the contents of that conversation between the US president and the uh, Taoiseach. My next guest was living in Australia and was well established there with a, a wife and three kids before he decided to take the momentous decision to return back to Ireland. James Parnell joins me now. James, you're very welcome to the programme. Good afternoon. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. Tell me, as I said in the intro, you were well established in Sydney. So I'm curious as to why you chose to return to Ireland and whether, I suppose, retrospectively, if you feel it was worth that big effort. Yeah, uh, there are some days where I doubt it, but um, overall, uh, don't have any regrets. Um, I mean, we were getting to the point um, with, with, with young children where if we left it much longer, it was going to get really difficult to ask them to move and, and return home. Um, we went with our, our gut. It was a, a, you know, a good decision um, to return to family, and we wanted them to grow up the same way as, as we had, both Irish. Um, curiously enough, we... we uh, lived across the road from a nursing home and um, it often made me think of whether I wanted to spend the rest of my life in Australia. So uh, it probably helped me clarify my thoughts a little bit. That's interesting. It was sort of a reminder of your own mortality in a way. 
Exactly, yeah. And I, I did ask myself, do I do I want to end my my time here? And um I think, you know, you you've got a connection with your with your roots and your, your home and um for us we went with our heart. We you know, we, we weighed up pros and cons and pe- some people do spreadsheets and try and weigh it all up, but really it's it's a decision of made by your heart and your gut and you've got to go with what you really feel, you know. We've been speaking quite a bit on the program today about the bureaucracy involved and the expense involved in making the transition back to Ireland. James, is it, I mean, coming from a place like Australia, which it's hard to get further away from Ireland, is it expensive to move a family of five back to Ireland from somewhere like Australia? Yeah, it's not cheap. I mean, uh, you know, as soon as kids come into the equation, you know, it's it's harder to strip it back to, you know, to declutter and everything else. So we shipped uh, furniture and a lot of our belongings and we we brought a car home as well in a 40-foot container. I did uh, calculate at one point what the first year, what we'd spent and probably the cost of the move itself was about 30,000, I'd say. and probably a bit, a bit more than that in terms of you spend more because you're out of your routine and that sort of thing. And when people read that, they couldn't believe it, you know, but we were trying to make things as easy as possible for ourselves so that everybody was, you know, settled in um, well. You know, you could obviously do it a lot cheaper, um, but it, it's it's an expensive move, but uh, you really got to plan it and you got to commit to it, yeah. and that's what we did. You know, so. the, the conversation about returning emigrants, James, it's nearly always focused on the adults, but I suppose kids are equally affected. How did you prepare your three kids for the big move back from Australia to Ireland? Well, I suppose first we were really lucky because they were eight, six and three when we had had that chat with them and, and, and asked them what they thought. I mean, we, we had decided it was going to happen because they were young enough anyway. But we tried to make it exciting. We had a countdown on the fridge and they got excited about it. Uh, they were really looking forward to it, you know, so. And I the eldest, the the eldest child. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah. The eldest yeah. was eight. What did he or yeah. she think when you asked them for their thoughts on the move? Uh, Ava was fine. She she was open minded. I think she was still, you know, not deeply rooted in the in the Aussie lifestyle and the and the um and, and friends. She had just started school, so she was probably the one we were most worried about. But luckily she she was open minded with it. And now when you ask them, you know, do they miss Australia? None of them do. The, the youngest, who was three at the time, doesn't remember anything. Um, they'd like to go back for a holiday, but, uh, as I said, very lucky at the right age and um, no real issues. Yeah, um, I'm, I also have Kate uh, Hennigan on the line. Kate is a violinist from Mayo who worked on a cruise ship in Australia but now lives back in Ireland. Um uh, Kate, you're very welcome to Ireland's call. Good afternoon to you. When the Thanks, pandemic hit, Kate, you were living and working on a cruise ship off the coast of Australia. Can you tell me about what happened at that point? Yeah, so um, thank you very much for having me as well, Simon. Um, I was working on a cruise ship, yeah, uh, in March 2020 when the pandemic hit and coronavirus got onto the ship. Um, so 
when that happened, uh, we were actually on a cruise on our way to New Zealand and the Prime Minister there, Jacinta Ardern, um, said no cruise ships are allowed into New Zealand. So we actually had to uh, turn the cruise ship around and embark on our three-day voyage back to Sydney at that time. And the the guests on the ship were allowed off, uh, but the crew, uh, we were isolated um, on the ship. And I ended up being isolated for 32 days, actually, altogether before we were repatriated back home to Ireland. And tell me, apart from the pandemic, what like you're obviously a touring musician. You have done work uh, on cruise ships. What's it like living on a cruise ship as someone who is in there in a working capacity as opposed to a, a pleasure capacity? Yeah, it was a super, super enjoyable experience and a great gig. And I suppose musicians are, are we're nearly like guests. Obviously, we gig every evening, um, but we were still allowed off every single day to, to the different courts and we get to experience all the kind of um, uh, the uh, off off short um events and that kind of thing with the guests and yeah it was just it was a brilliant gig and i really hope fingers crossed that the cruise industry gets back to where it was pre-pandemic but we'll see uh, now when you you're obviously back in ireland now how has the transition been to back living in ireland after touring around the world yeah, so I came back to Ireland and I moved back in with my parents um, for a while. And yeah, it was it was it was difficult transitioning. I guess I had a really busy 2020 planned, as everyone did. I mean, I wasn't alone in that. So my plans completely changed. But I mean, I got the, the chance to finish my masters. I'm working on music for my debut album, and I'm kind of um, pursuing new paths in my career now as well, which is exciting. So I'm looking forward to the future now. Case, thank you for joining us on Ireland's Call. I'm sorry we can't speak to you for longer, but the clock is against us as always. That was Kate Hennigan from County Mayo. And before that, James Parnell, who has returned from Australia with his family to live in Ireland. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Ireland's Call today. It's been a pleasure to have your company over the last two hours. My thanks to producer Helena O'Toole and Stephen and Peter on sound. Adrian Kennedy is up next with The Hard Shoulder sitting in for Kieran. I'm Simon Tierney. Thank you for listening. Ireland's Call with Simon Tierney. This is News Talk.